Here we go. Hi, Kavita, and hi, Cody. Thank you so much for having me today. As you mentioned, I'm a bariatric surgeon. I've been at Johns Hopkins for 13 years and began with adult bariatric surgery, and that has now also focused my attention towards adolescents. And so I direct the adolescent bariatric program here at Johns Hopkins as well. When I first came to Hopkins, I was more of the education track and loved to teach and work with all types of students, ranging from undergrads to postdocs and fellows. And about three years into being here at Hopkins, I found so many wonderful people who were doing research and went back to school, uh, received my PhD at the Bloomberg School of Public Health in 2014, and have ever since also described myself as a clinician scientist. And I think that really came from my patients who have motivated me. Um, they give me the ideas and the passion and motivation to find better treatments for them. Great. That is awesome. Oh, and I forgot. I'm a mom. That's the most important. I have two beautiful sons, Michael and Matthew, that are eight and nine years old. That's awesome. Great. So... We're really glad to have you here today. I know that Kavita and I are really interested in trying to dive into obesity and how we can, as a society, do better because there's just such a, a massive burden and just a lot of human suffering happening as a result of that. And it's such a bizarre problem because we do have interventions that we know work, but clearly it's not enough um, because the problem just seems to be getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. I know that your principal point of contact with people with obesity is as their surgeon. So I guess we could start by talking a little bit about what makes someone a good candidate for uh, obesity surgery. Okay. First off, uh, in order to have bariatric surgery right now, our guidelines come from the National Institute of, Institute of Health from 1991. And those guidelines suggest that anyone between the age of 18 to 65 who has a body mass index, which is a number that anyone can calculate or use the internet to calculate because there's body mass index calculators they can calculate. If you go to Google and, and uh, Google body mass index, uh, what they'll ask you for is your weight and your height. And the score is your weight over height squared, kilograms in, um, and height squared, and it gives you a number. If that number comes out to be 35 to 39.9, then you qualify for bariatric surgery if you have medical comorbidities. And what's a medical comorbidity? Those are things that are associated with obesity. Diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, sleep apnea, reflux, and even some cancers. Then if your BMI is over 40, you don't need any of those medical comorbidities. You qualify for surgery. Okay. Now, that said, 
we as surgeons uh, then evaluate you to ensure that the benefit of the surgery outweighs the risk. And that might be based on your medical problems and whether you will tolerate the surgery safely. Yeah, I imagine that people facing severe obesity are going to have a lot harder time recovering from surgery and would probably be more challenging to operate on just because of all the stress their body's under. Yes, we we talk about the patients when the BMI is over 50, they're then in what's called a, a super obese class, and it does increase their risk of complications following surgery. And so in the first uh, visit with our patients, we certainly do talk about the risks and benefits and how they can help themselves before surgery to optimize their health to make it as smooth as possible. That makes a lot of sense. We were discussing a little earlier how a multifactorial approach and trying to come at this obesity problem from all kinds of different angles is Mm -hmm. probably the best approach. So it's good to see that that's part of the picture even when people get to the point where surgery is considered most likely necessary. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is uh, to remember... In most instances, uh, when this is covered by insurance companies, the insurance companies mandate that there has been evidence for other types of weight loss uh, interventions. So we do have to prove to the insurance company that the patient has tried traditional methods of weight loss, whether it be exercise, types of diets, and medications. And when those fail, then that meets the NIH criteria plus the BMI. There are other things that are thrown into that National Institute of Health criteria. That includes uh, having family support, and it includes that there has been an absence of alcohol use if there is a problem or a psychological indication or illness that needs to be addressed prior to, to bariatric surgery. So as, as a follow-up to the psychological problem, how does the presence of a binge eating disorder or bulimia or things of that nature affect the decision to pursue surgery or not? That's an excellent question. And for everyone out there that is going to go and consider bariatric surgery, if you do have an issue like binge eating or bulimia or anorexia, some people laugh at that. But if there is a history of that, it is so important to share it with your surgeons and your providers so that we can address it and make sure that you're safe to have the surgery. When patients suffer from these type of eating disorders and it's not addressed before surgery, you can imagine the complications. You know, when we do these surgeries, we're changing the anatomy. And if they are binging or vomiting or purging, that's going to stress the operation uh, and can create some incredibly bad complications that you you just don't want to go there. So I think if I can say anyone out there that's considering surgery, please, please share everything with your surgeon and your provider so that we can help you. Keeping it under wraps is not the way to go. Because in the end, it, it's going to cause a complication. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's a really important message since, I mean, all surgeries come with risks. And when you're making changes to an organ system that's under so much mechanical stress, mm-hmm. and then you have comorbidities like that that would put it through even more stress, mm-hmm. 
I imagine that's a, a real recipe for trouble. Yes. And so again, uh, prior to surgery, we, we try to optimize that. And that might be working on eating behaviors because what we have to understand and what we have to send a message to the patient is that surgery is only a tool. We can't wave a magic wand, snap our fingers, and the next day things are different. We, What I tell my patients, we can give you that tool. You have to use the tool properly. And so the, the key ingredients to success with bariatric surgery is that you take it upon yourself to educate yourself so that you know as much as you can before surgery and you're as prepared as you can be and that you have support. And then finally, it's about compliance. It truly is. If you follow what you're supposed to do, given the rules, you will have success because okay. these tools do work when you use them right. Uh, and sometimes that's hard for patients to really understand. Uh, so hopefully we can send that message out because these tools, there's evidence. They do work under circumstances where you're following the rules. Okay. It makes sense that you kind of want to set someone up for success before they get this life-altering yes. surgery because in and of itself, it's a very sort of a huge change in the way their body's going to yes. function and move in. So it makes sense that you want them to not only be able to cope with that, but also cope with their obesity, um, right. which hopefully will be treated by both routes. Right. And what I try to say in interviewing with the patient, that, that this has been an ongoing lifestyle, and it's not easy to make those changes with you know just 24 hours. And so preparing yourself before surgery is essential. Mm-hmm. And it, it, some of the things we do right up front is talking to patients about learning how to read a label, talking about sugar. So Mayor Bloomberg from New York was right about getting rid of the big, whatever, the big big gulp. Sugar is poison in our society. And if you take that away, patients lose weight. It's incredible. I tell patients if, and I learned this from the nutritionists I work with Mm -hmm. who are just amazing. If you take sugar and it fits in the th- first three ingredients, and you don't eat it, in one week you can lose a pound. And it's incredible to see patients who come back and say, wow, Dr. Steele, it works, and it makes a difference. So we do small steps like that. We talk about the importance of protein, and we talk about the difference between complex carbs, which are healthy carbs, and those that are not and to explain a complex carb are things with fiber in it. So fruit and vegetables, quinoa, some, everyone, when I say that, but quinoa, (laughs) uh, beans, lentils, oatmeal versus French fries and white bread. So if you just make those small changes, patients see success. Hmm. And uh, it's incredible to see how my patients come back before their surgery and have already made some of these simple changes that then go on to help them postoperatively. Because postoperatively, these patients have to follow pretty rigorous diets. And I'm not sure if everyone recognizes or realizes that when they go to seek out bariatric surgery, that their whole diet and behavior will need to change to have success. Yeah, that must be a sobering thing to hear for some patients because I think there's a certain subclass of people who 
I think they, they see surgery as somebody else is going to fix them. Mm-hmm. And clearly in this case, it's something where, like you said, it's a tool, mm-hmm. but they're going to very much have to continue to do much of the fighting themselves. Absolutely. And, you know, enough evidence has shown that the weight loss usually happens in the first year to 18 months, and then it slowly stops. And patients will describe that at first their hunger goes away, their cravings go away, those come back again. That's part of my research and trying to understand why that happens, how it happens, and why it happens, and how we could intervene. In the meantime, while we don't know that, what we do have to say to patients is they need to really take focus of how they've made those changes over the first year and recognize that when old habits start to creep back in, where can they seek out the resources for help Mm -hmm. to not allow it to take over again? And I think that's something we as physicians and care providers need to figure out how to even do better because we tend to do the surgery, ask them to come back for follow-up, and when they don't, we lose them. And um, many do kind of succumb to those old eating behaviors again, and about 25% do regain their weight. And so one of the driving motivators for me in my research is to try to figure out what predicts who's going to do well versus not, what the causes are of this, um, you know, change uh, over time, and how do we intervene so that patients have success forever. I think I feel as a provider, it's a shame for a patient to have to go through this kind of life-changing surgery that is risky and not have continued success. And so the one thing I would say again to everyone out there is if you make the commitment to having bariatric surgery, hold on to it and uh, seek out help uh, so that you don't go back. Because uh, it's, I would say if, if you're not committed and ready to make the changes, don't do it because it's just not worth that risk. It's worth it if you are willing to make the changes. It's wonderfully worth it. But uh, only if you're willing to make those changes. Yeah, I, I think that's a a challenge that comes with a lot of today's chronic diseases is mm-hmm. that there's just no one-time fix. It's an right. ongoing process with yeah. so many of our illnesses. Yes, you got it. So before we get into your research findings and maybe some of the things that help set people up for success or predict whether they'll be able to lose a lot of weight, can you tell us a little bit about the different types of surgeries that uh, someone can get bariatric surgeries to address their obesity Mm -hmm. and what that experience is and even a little bit about what their diet looks like after surgery? Sure. Maybe I should even start back. So a patient comes in for a consult. We take a history and physical. We talk to them about the different procedures that we offer, and then they must go off to do some qualifications or mandatory testing that needs to be done in order to ensure that uh, they're safe for surgery. Part of that includes a nutrition consult, so they meet with a nutritionist and learn about the diet that they're going to be doing. Uh, We teach them that uh, a female should get in 60 to 80 grams of protein every day. We teach that protein should be the first thing in the patient's mouth. We talk about eight cups of water, so hydration is absolutely essential for all of us. And we talk about 
exercise being an important part of our everyday. Uh, if only we were models of that, right? We got it. So, uh, and then uh, after nutrition, every patient is asked to go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist for an evaluation, especially to kind of fish out the the, the chronic eating behaviors that need to be addressed before surgery. And again, I say, please tell all so that we can help you. And then there might be some medical testing as well. It might be upper endoscopy. That's where they stick a scope, a camera down through your mouth and into your stomach to make sure there's no pathology in the stomach that we need to address. If patients are over 50 and they have not had screening mammography, well, if they're over 40, screening mammography. If they're over 50, screening colonoscopy, uh, pap smear in a woman. All of those things should be up to date. And we say that because these surgeries are elective, right? What we say is the patient doesn't have to have the surgery. The surgeon doesn't have to do the surgery. It's not an emergency surgery. And so we want to have all of our ducks in a row before we go to surgery. Once all of those things are done, then we have to decide on Oh, and I forgot there's also sometimes cardiac clearance, pulmonary clearance. It depends on the patient's medical conditions. But expect that there's going to be a long list of things that need to get done to make sure you're safe for surgery. Once all of those things are completed, we have to decide what procedure is the best procedure for you. In today's age, uh, the most common procedure is the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. About... Five, six years ago, it was the room Y gastric bypass and the band. The gastric band is the least invasive of the procedures that we do do. Uh, however, it is on its way out, and that's because we would put these bands in and we would lose patients to follow up. Mm-hmm. The band really is a silastic or plastic band that sits around the top part of the stomach and acts like a noose or a belt. And it's attached to a catheter, and the catheter comes out uh, through your abdominal wall, and uh, there is a port, uh, a little indicator that sits just under, we put it just under your left rib. Some doctors put it other places in the abdomen. And it sits under the skin in your fat. And the uh, physician or nurse practitioner access that port and injects normal saline, salt water, into the port. And around the band is a balloon. And that balloon is then blown up depending on how much salt water we put in. And that creates basically a narrowing in the top part of your stomach. So if you envision a funnel, that's what we create. Mm -hmm. Now, the tighter the funnel, the less that can go down. So you can imagine a patient trying to eat a hamburger through that. It would be tough, right? It's going to hurt, and so you stop. However, what was happening was patients who are sweet eaters or carb eaters... When you eat those kind of meals, right, you sabotage yourself because they all drain through. Mm -hmm. And so patients might lose some weight, but we were not seeing great weight loss. Some did as long as they followed the rules, but a lot of patients were not. And in the end, many of these bands were being removed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Europe and in Australia, uh, the bands are still being put in. Mexico, they're still being put in. Uh, It's rare now across the nation, though, that patients are getting bands. They're still out there. I tend not to put them in. I've been removed. You remove them. And and we call that kind of a restrictive procedure. If if you want to think of 
of the types of procedures, we kind of put classify them as restrictive. They decrease the amount that you can eat. And then the restrictive slash malabsorptive. So the restrictive ones are the band and the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. Some component of um, malabsorption is the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Okay. Again, years ago, the bypass was the most common. We were doing about 80% gastric bypass and 20% band in some sleeve. Now, the sleeve has kind of taken over to about 70 to 80% and the bypass 30%. Mostly because of internet and patients talking, the sleeve is portrayed as less invasive because we are not messing with the small bowel. We are only concentrating on the stomach. And so in the sleeve, if patients can imagine their stomach being as big as a watermelon when it's filled with food, uh, what we do is remove about two-thirds to three-quarters of the greater curve, the outside portion of the stomach, and make a tube-sized stomach about the size of a banana. Mm -hmm. And what that does is restrict the amount that someone can eat at any one time to about half a cup. And then they feel full. They might feel it in their chest and they can't tolerate anymore or they might throw up or feel sick. And the other mechanism that's thought is at the top part of the stomach, there are some hormones. Uh, One of them is called ghrelin, which makes us hungry. And so when that stomach is removed, the ghrelin goes away and patients do lose some of their hunger. And that's how that procedure works. The gastric bypass is more invasive. The results, though, sleeve and the bypass have now gone head-to-head in two different trials uh, over in Europe. The the two trials are called the sleeve pass and emboss. Those two trials. <laughs> we have a thing about fun trials. Oh, do you? Okay. We're just trying to, trying to keep tabs. Yeah. Okay. So these two trials uh, were done in Europe. Uh, And what they did is they they were able, unlike here, to randomize patients to the sleeve versus the bypass and follow patients over five years. And what they found was that overall, weight loss was a little better in the bypass, but not significant, and that the comorbidities were very similar between the bypass and the sleeve. Uh, Bypass patients did have better success with hypertension resolution. Now, the thing that doesn't come out, so what what those two trials were saying is, hey, the sleeve is just as good as the bypass. Mm -hmm. However, one thing to recognize and point out for patients is in that study, and what we're seeing more of, is it did bring to light that almost, I think it was 17% of patients who had the sleeve went on to have reflux. And that's a problem because if we can treat, if we cannot treat the reflux with uh, medication like uh, a PPI, a proton pump inhibitor, or uh, an H2 blocker, and, and so things like protonics and Prevacid or Zantac and ranitidine and Pepsid that yeah. patients know, then the next step is to convert those patients from a vertical sleeve gastrectomy to a gastric bypass. Okay. So it's really important, again, that when patients come in, they tell all. If you have reflux, please let your surgeon know because that needs to be worked up. Okay. In many ca- And you want the sleeve. In many cases, uh, when patients lose weight, their reflux does improve because having abdominal obesity does increase abdominal pressure, which does make reflux worse. And so losing weight might make reflux better. On the other hand, what we have seen is that Sometimes we create 
reflux with these slaves. And when the conservative treatment doesn't help, then they do have to go on to uh, be revised to a gastric bypass. The gastric bypass, basically what we do is we create a small pouch about the size of an egg. So we go from a watermelon to the size of an egg for a stomach. And it measures about 30 mils or cc's, so uh, uh, four, four ounces that you can tolerate at any one time. And then we take your small bowel and we, we divide the small bowel about distally from what's called the ligament of trites, about 40 or 50 centimeters, depending on the surgeon. And we reconnect the small bowel to that tiny pouch. Mm -hmm. And so we are rerouting the digestive enzymes from the liver and pancreas. And they don't, in, in normal digestion, you eat food and it immediately passes through the liver and pancreatic area where enzymes are released and food is digested. In the gastric bypass, we bypass the liver and pancreatic juices, and the food meets distally down further to meet up with those enzymes, and so food uh, absorption is decreased. And patients lose weight both by restriction and malabsorption. Gotcha, just because there's less real estate doing the, the work of... Uh, small intestine digestion. You, you got it. The other thing is those gut hormones we talked about with the sleeve also are kind of are uh, instrumental in, in the success of a bypass patient. So there's been studies that do suggest that ghrelin goes down and GLP-1 goes up and PYY also um, increases. And those are important gut hormones that not only affect our gut physiology, but do have some... Uh, uh, behavioral changes. They, they do cross the blood-brain barrier and make changes to our, our thoughts about food and cravings with food. And that also is some of the research that we're doing now. Yeah, I'd love to dive into that more in the future is just understanding this gut-brain axis because mm -hmm. I know in psychiatry that's one of these things that everyone is sort of aware of but nobody quite knows what to do mm -hmm. with. We have the, the ruin Y and the gastric bypass. Um, yeah, and the, the vertical sleeve are the the, the um, two, two biggest ones now. Right, and it sounds like as a surgeon, you would largely base the preference on factors like uh, adherence and the presence of, of GERD, medical, other medical comorbidities, or how how does that decision get made? I think first off, patients need to be educated and make an informed decision. So when they come in, they have an idea of what procedure they would like. Uh, I try to provide them with extra information uh, with videos and diagrams uh, talking about the pros and cons of these different procedures. I do think, and there's still not enough evidence, again, the, the sleeve and bypass have gone head to head and they kind of look comparable. However, I believe still if a patient comes in and their BMI is over 50, they're diabetic or they have severe sleep apnea, hypertension, so they have what's called metabolic syndrome, the bypass might be the better option. Not in everyone, but it might be, and that needs to be discussed. And then if a patient does come in with severe reflux, GERD, then that also needs to be a discussion and worked up properly to decide whether sleeve is appropriate or whether they do need a gastric bypass. In most cases, if a patient has severe reflux, the bypass is the better option. Sometimes even if a patient comes in and uh, they have severe reflux and they have what's called Barrett's esophagus, which is basically caused by chronic reflux that changes 
these cells in the esophagus. We will not do a sleeve. We, sh we should be doing a gastric bypass uh, because we don't want to worsen the reflux and make that Barrett's turn to something bad like cancer. Yeah. All right, and um, so we discussed the predictors of success a bit. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any other thoughts on when a patient comes in, what information tells you that they're most likely to have a good outcome? You mentioned family support. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the absence of other health factors like re uh, gastric reflux and diabetes, other elements of the metabolic syndrome. Any other things that you see as green flags or red flags? Well, I think, you know, most patients come in with medical problems and, and that's, that's our job actually is to, to recommend and uh, provide surgical treatment for obesity so that those medical complications can go away or get better. Mm -hmm. So patients who have type 2 diabetes, bariatric surgery is a very good idea for them. Patients who have hypertension and sleep apnea, we see resolution or remission of these diseases after these surgeries, which is so exciting. Yeah. As far as, as success, predictors of success, right now, we really don't have an idea. We, we're working on it. There was a study called LABS, and this was a National Institute of Health longitudinal study of bariatric patients at multi-sites, and they have a huge cohort that they've followed over years. And they've looked at trying to figure out what are the predictors of success with demographics and age and, and feeding behaviors. And so far, we haven't come up with a lot. However, as a clinician, from my clinician side, it's about compliance. Okay. It's following what we recommend and using the tool well. Um, they should have good success. Okay. Number one. Two, from the research side, we are working on trying to figure out what predicts success. In my research right now, I'm working with the Department of Psychiatry, Dr. Tim Moran and Dr. Susan Carnell and Dr. Kimberly Smith and Vidya Karmoff. With a wonderful team, we are trying to look at that gut-brain axis. So how we are manipulating the gut physiology, changing the gut hormones, and therefore changing feeding behavior and messages to our brain. We've looked at taste, how taste might predict bariatric surgical outcomes, and we're hoping to come out with some some hot stuff soon. Uh, so we, we did study. We took our wonderful patients. If you're out there, you've been awesome research participants. Uh, we took patients before and after bariatric surgery, and we gave them some tastes of varying concentrations of milk and sugar, asked them to rate them, and then we took them to the scanner and presented them with those tastants in their mouth. Uh, with what was called a gustometer. And in real time are looking at what parts of the brain are lighting up or not in response to those tastants and seeing how it might change with the different types of surgery. So that's on the horizon and we're excited about it. We're also looking at the gut hormones in particular, correlating that with brain imaging and also some genetics and epigenetics, how the environment might be affecting obesity. So these are all things that, that are to come. That's yeah, really exciting, the idea of being able to get to the behavioral changes and figure out what's going on with the, the hormones, because theoretically, if we could mimic the right signals, we could 
intervene medically and reduce the need for invasive surgeries. Absolutely. Gets us out of a job, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. How very selfless. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I believe, uh, you know, surgery is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important message. Uh, you have to be in the right time of your life, be able to cope with everything, not have stressors that will interfere, have proper support so there's not people sabotaging you, and really deciding that this is what you want to do to make the changes. And Small changes help because it motivates you to make the next change. And uh, so you just you have to be wanting to do this. And if not, it it's not the right thing and that's okay. Then you're making the smart decision. Okay. And I think it's helpful to help people understand that it sounds like regardless of whether you choose to go the surgical route or not, this is really about continuing to make sustained changes that you're willing to continue for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And I think that that surprises me a little bit that it, Either way, you're going with that same paradigm, which is, I guess, a hopeful message that developing those skills is going to be useful whether or not surgery comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And so to piggyback off that idea a little bit, I'm asking kind of for myself and also for all of the patients I take care of as a primary care physician Mm -hmm. who are obese and want to lose weight, what would be, if I was somebody who was obese, say who had a BMI of 37 and I wanted to lose weight, what would be your first sort of advice to me and how, what would your approach be? First of all, I was talking to Cody about this earlier. I think it's hard for physicians to address it and it's hard for patients to address it because there's such a stigma. And so the first thing would be to actually congratulate the patient that they're there and they want to make the changes and establish a relationship with the patient where they feel um, the ability to describe what it's been like to go through these things. And then I think the most important thing is to make small changes. You can't do it all at once. The first thing maybe even just starting to journal what you're eating because mm-hmm. it's incredible how we don't realize what we're putting in our mouth. Mm-hmm. We think we're doing it right. We think we're not eating or we're not taking that much in. It's incredible when I sit with patients and I do kind of a presentation and I show them how many calories are in a little Starbucks toffee crunch. They're like, whoa because they don't recognize that. And so I think the first thing is to establish an eating pattern and using some apps. Uh, we talked to Cody and I about this. My Fitness Pals is one that my patients use a lot. Uh, there's Sparks People. There's some bariatric ones now out there. There's even ones now that they're trying where you can actually take pictures of your food and it will tell you how many oh, calories. Wow. It doesn't. Doing that anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't work so great sometimes, but I think it's a great idea. And uh, for anyone tech out there, it's something that will be good too. But first, recognize what you're eating mm-hmm. by journaling your food. And then start to make some small changes. So as we talked about earlier, if sugar's in the first three ingredients, cut it out. Cut out the sodas. Cut out the fruit juice. I think uh, I remember my pediatrician very early telling us, do not have your kids drink juice. I was like, what? I was horrified. Uh, we all drank juice. But juice is filled with sugar. And, and it's not good for your teeth. And it puts weight on. So 
try to avoid things with high sugar, and that in itself will help you start to drop weight. Then focus on protein. So we teach our patients that protein should go in your mouth first. And we talk about the size of a portion of protein is about the the palm of your your hand. Mm -hmm. So that's how much protein would be a good serving. And then the next thing in your mouth should be the vegetable. (laughs) And if you really want the carb, then you have the carb, but you try to aim for a complex carb, like we talked about before. Beans, lentils, quinoa, brown rice versus the white rice, oatmeal, avocado. And if you're going to have that complex carb, make it a small serving. Mm -hmm. And that's hard, but maybe portion it out. Those are the small things. And then uh, something that I just learned, uh, because I'm taking my obesity specialty certificate coming up. I have an exam in February. (laughs) Is There was a study that we were taught that in bariatrics, we shouldn't ask our patients to weigh themselves because that discourages the patient. In fact, there was a new study that just came out that shows it's actually important to weigh yourself, not crazy amount, but at least once a week so that you recognize where you are and take note if you're starting to put the weight on and be able to take a step back and make some changes. In our bariatric world, we do use protein shakes. Uh, I think that it is a really important adjunct to learning how to decrease and curb those behaviors. So I do ask my patients to do at least one protein shake a day, and that seems to help as well. So those are the things. And then, you know, most important, you have to incorporate some exercise. Mm -hmm. Some of my patients say, well, I can't exercise. It hurts too much. And I understand. So there is chair yoga, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had one young gal who was embarrassed and I don't blame her, right, Mm -hmm. to, to be exercising right now. So we talked about Zumba in her room. Even if it's five or ten minutes, pull up YouTube. There's lots of great exercise videos. There's walking, so you can just walk to music, even if it's for five, ten minutes. And what exercise does is stimulate all of those good hormones um, endorphins that make you feel better. Mm-hmm. So for all those reasons, try. I, I know I'm one to talk. I'm so, so busy, but I have found that yoga is really healing for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And it's important, I think, to point out, I've noticed that there's a big cultural trend and we talked about this a little bit in our sitting episode mm-hmm. that exercise has to be your all or nothing. Like if yeah. you're not putting on fancy exercise clothes and like sweating your butt off then you're not doing it. But I do think that based on some of the reading we've already done, that there's a big role for gentle exercise. Absolutely. You, you know, even if you put on YouTube and you do 10 minutes of walking, cause there are just 10 minute walking videos or, you know, I tell some of my young adolescents the way I used to study my, my physiology in med school. Cause I didn't like physiology. I used to sit on, cause I never had time to exercise, but that was my excuse. I used to study physiology on my exercise bike and it, it, it wasn't fun. <laughs> But I then associated physiology with my exercise bike, and it made the time go by. So you have to use strategies to make it okay. But it's hard, and I think, again, that's where support and having a buddy helps. And so if you can find someone that can motivate you or you motivate them, that's also a a key to success. I totally agree. I feel like I am 
vibing with a lot of what you're saying. Yeah. I just feel a lot of my patients um, in clinic, they are overweight or obese, and I feel like it's because of that stigma or just because you're always thinking about something that's more urgent, you never get around to addressing it. But I think right. it's often the key to why they're here in your clinic or it's a reason that some of their other um, illnesses like diabetes or high blood pressure are affecting them so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's definitely so important to keep it on the sort of top of your mind. Yeah, I think one thing we lose sight of is uh, if you address the obesity, a lot of those medical problems will go away. Yeah. And so it should be upfront, but in our society, it's a stigma and it's, it's difficult to overcome that and have real important conversations, tough conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with the sort of all that you've um, said about reflecting on how you eat first and then making small changes. I have a couple of people in my family who they kept telling me that I don't eat anything. I don't understand how I keep gaining weight. I don't understand why it's so Mm -hmm. hard. And so then one day I took my fitness pal, sat down with them, and I said, tell me everything that you eat Mm -hmm. in a day. Let's just do the math. And then we both were so surprised to see that they were eating over 2,000 calories Mm -hmm. in a day. And it was just these little things like one more flatbread or that mango pickle or whatever was just adding up. Um, So I think that's very important to kind of figure out where you're at. Right. And then, you know, with these protein shakes, what I do tell patients is if you're hungry and you want to go for something, you know you shouldn't, have a protein shake first. Fill up on that Mm -hmm. and then you won't eat as much. Um, Or if you're going to grab for something you shouldn't, then pick up the phone and text someone or go out and maybe do that walking. It has to come from you and and be motivated. And sometimes it's just really hard to get started. Once you get started, it becomes easier. Definitely. I think it's so important as well to figure out why somebody wants to lose weight Mm because then that can kind of also be there thing they keep coming back to as right. a reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing. I ask my patients, I, I bring them a journal after surgery and ask them to journal at least for their first couple of weeks to a month so that they always have that to look back in a year or so to see where they have come from and what they had to do to get to where they are so they don't lose sight of that. And I hope that that helps. I think the other thing just to mention that I have seen with my own adolescence And it's something I will tell you, I started as an adult bariatric surgeon and was asked about four years into my practice to consider adolescent bariatric surgery. And I myself was met with biases. I was a new young mom and doing something as aggressive, as invasive as bariatric surgery on a young teenager seemed hard for me. And then I sat with a group of pediatricians and heard the stories and realize that there's kids out there that really do need it. It's not for everyone. As I have progressed and met these young teenagers, they're incredible. And I've learned so much from them of what it's been like to deal with their weight and social pressures and living with that weight and feeling invisible and seeing how bariatric surgery has changed their life. The one thing I would say is to get your help seek help sooner than later. There's now, you know, impressive evidence that the longer you have the weight issues, the longer it takes a toll on your body and your organs, and the harder it is to lose the weight. So intervening sooner and making the changes sooner is actually the best thing you can do for yourself. So a question that's been on my mind is, 
as physicians, and I know you were talking a little bit about this, Kavita, what do you think we could do differently? Do you feel that we're failing to educate patients about the consequences of obesity? Uh, do you think that we're not giving them the best tools for success? Is there some other solution that we're overlooking? Mm, I think in today's age, I feel that it's, it's hard for a physician. We are tasked to see so many patients and we only have so many hours a day. And it's just, it's super hard to be everything for that patient. And so I think where we do feel the patient is not giving the patients enough resources and support, both upfront before surgery, I think we're doing a better job at that. Um, Post-operatively, I think we need lots more because I think this is a lifelong disease and commitment. And so I wish that we could figure out a way to have more time for our patients and provide more post-operative care for them. For those who don't have surgery and for physicians, yes, I think there is such a stigma and bias that it's hard for a doctor to address obesity. We address all the other medical problems. We can talk about high blood pressure and diabetes to a patient. It's harder to talk about obesity, both from the physician and the patient's side. And so if there was a way that we could learn to improve that communication between patient and doctor, that would be great. And not to be afraid to address it in such a way that it's poised and where you can get buy-in from your patient to make the difference. We need to do better to address obesity because it's just, it's getting worse. Yeah. And it is tough to bring it up. I mean, I've spoken a little bit in past podcasts and when we were discussing this earlier that I used to be obese and I remember when my doctors did bring it up, I felt personally attacked mm -hmm. and I don't even, I don't know that that was their fault, right. but it's just hard not to feel like it's just the result of your moral weakness. Right. And right. And so I think we have to learn better ways to approach it. And I think patients need to feel comfortable to address it. Maybe what we need to do is get a message out to patients that obesity is a disease and it is a disease that can make you super sick and can take your life and make it shorter. And the, the thing with obesity is, unlike some diseases, there is a cure. Yeah. Maybe we need to address it more like it is a disease and not that it's the patient's problem or issue. Yeah. I mean, it is scary. Things like type 2 diabetes and some of these metabolic syndrome consequences seem to have more of an effect on lifespan than things that people are more traditionally scared of, right. um, like HIV and certain cancers. Those have become almost chronic manageable diseases mm -hmm. where um, once you have type 2 diabetes, unless you're really on top of it, you're in for some awful consequences. Right. Well, and, and maybe obesity needs to be looked at the same way. Yeah. Are there any cultural barriers that make it hard sure. in terms of uh, now a lot of people are obese and overweight and so mm -hmm. are just the way we see the world is changing in terms of what we think is uh, a normal body weight. Right. I, absolutely. You know, I, I understand that patients who are overweight, there's this kind of, we are all beautiful. We are all beautiful. And whether you're short or tall or have a medical disability, However, the message needs to be that being obese is a disease and that with it comes medical comorbidities that can really make you sick. 
there's a fine line on how you address it. Culture is all about we we socialize around food. Mm-hmm. However, what I do talk about with my patients are there are so many incredible ways around that. There are so many lovely strategies out there now. If you just Google, even on Pinterest, there's a zillion awesome recipes where food can be delicious mm-hmm. and you can enjoy it without the calories and overdoing it. And that's the thing also, I think, to send a message to our patients that having bariatric surgery does not mean that it has to deprive you from food, that, you know, you're never going to eat all of those wonderful things. It's not true. What bariatric surgery should be doing is teaching you how to eat right, how to eat properly with portion control. So it doesn't mean that you can't have a little piece of cake. It's the amount of cake. Or you learn strategies to make the cake healthier. I remember a couple when I was very young attending, and the wife came in, and she used to wear baggy clothes and didn't feel good about herself. And the husband was not crazy about her having surgery. We got down to it. It was because they always go out to restaurants to eat. Mm-hmm. And he felt that if she had bariatric surgery, they, that would be gone. That, that pleasure would be gone. Well, a year after surgery, she comes in with a beautiful suit on. She'd lost 150 pounds. Wow. They'd gone skydiving together. I do not condone that after bariatric <laughs> surgery, but they did it. And the husband said to me, Dr. Steele, I want to thank you. My husband, my, my husband, my wife is the cheapest date ever. <laughs> so they go out and now they've learned um, what they explained was they go out. But instead of ordering the huge portion, they order the appetizer. Mm. Or they order one plate and they share it. Mm -hmm. Or they order a portion and the other half is for dinner the next night. And um, it, it taught me so much just from that one scenario that you can enjoy life. And this is not going to be a deprivation. That you learn new ways to cope and deal with eating. Yeah, and that's what brings me back to thinking about the, the hormones in response to eating is this idea that the last cookie in the box never tastes as good as the first one. And, and I, the- yeah, you're right. I tell patients, so when you go for that cookie, do you feel good after you eat the whole box? And everyone will say, no, you feel gross, right? Yeah. So what I try to say to them is, hey, before you go to eat that whole box, think about how you're going to feel, right? Um, and hopefully you'll put it down before you have that whole box. Again, those are just strategies. doesn't always work, I get it, but something to think about. Yeah, and I hope one day we have the tools to to help regulate that both from the medical standpoint and from the behavioral standpoint mm-hmm. because... I, I haven't read deep into the literature, but I suspect that the neurohormonal regulation of mm-hmm. satiety is very different for people with obesity compared to people who don't face that yeah, problem. Absolutely. And, and we see that in you know the studies we're doing and looking at the neuroimaging and the parts of the brain that are being signaled uh, in a healthy control versus someone who is struggling with weight. So next question for you, Dr. Steele. Over the course of your career, what changes have you seen in the field of obesity and surgery to address obesity? Are there any new changes? You've mentioned a few, but are Mm -hmm. are there any others on the horizon that you're excited about? I think one of the 
best ones for me is that people are recognizing we need to provide more support and education uh, for our patients and that I'm hoping it will be post-operatively as well. I also see more of a focus on trying to figure out what procedure is the best procedure for a patient before we just dive into doing these procedures. I also think that there are some medications on the horizon as we discover more about the gut and the brain. There have been some really nice studies now that are showing that an adjunct might be some medications. Uh, they're not there yet, but I do think in our post-bariatric patients who are struggling, some of these medications might be helpful in the future, uh, and that's kind of our next step in our research. Uh, I'm hoping that we can take patients who have had weight regain and randomize them to one of these medications versus not and do some neuroimaging to look at how these medications might be helping. That said, there are some less invasive procedures being explored and studied. Those include endoscopics. I'm sure that patients out there have heard about the, the balloon. That's a plastic balloon that is inserted either endoscopically. There's one that's swallowed. <laughs> um, and then uh, the, the balloon stays in there and what it does is it expands the stomach so as if you are full, making you feel full, and so you decrease the amount of food that you eat. Um, the, the balloon does have to be retrieved. Uh, and, well, the weight loss is not incredible, like mm -hmm. bariatric surgery. There is some significant weight loss with it, maybe 5, maybe 10, 20 pounds, but in patients who aren't able to have bariatric surgery for various reasons or might be too dangerous for them to have bariatric surgery or as a step towards surgery, uh, this might be one of our next steps. And then one of my colleagues is looking at interventional radiology and embolizing some of these vessels at the stomach that release hormones like ghrelin to decrease that, to decrease cravings. So that's something that is being studied. What does it mean to embolize? Embolize means to actually take this tiny little material that basically is inserted minimally invasively into an artery to block that vessel from supplying blood to certain areas of an organ like the stomach. And in so doing, it, it, it theoretically is decreasing hormones like ghrelin. And so it decreases your hunger. And so that's on the horizon. You know, hopefully we'll have some newer stuff, but those are kind of the things that are happening now. Some of the, our GI colleagues have some incredibly cool endoscopic tools that are doing some suturing. So if a bariatric patient's pouch expands over time from overeating, mm -hmm. They can go in endoscopically. That's that scope that goes down into the, the stomach and actually suture and make the pouch smaller. Okay. Uh, so that's also something that's being worked on and experimented with. For the time being, though, really bariatric surgery is the best way to have the most successful weight loss and sustained weight loss that we can provide. And it sounds like it will probably have a role for quite some time, although it might become a little bit more infrequent as some of these other less invasive procedures we start to mature and we start to understand them? Yes. As I think is common knowledge at this point, the obesity problem in this country is getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the biggest drivers of the problem? 
our government, our industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I know at the School of Public Health when I was there, there are certainly all kinds of scientists trying to fight this. You know, we're surrounded by food that's not healthy for us. And it's getting worse and worse. And we live in an environment where we're made to believe that more is better. When you go out to a restaurant, you expect to get a portion for your money. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we're teaching well enough in school the importance of choosing the right foods and the choices. And I'll give you an example. In, in my children's class, they don't sit and just eat. Mm-hmm. They get 30 minutes, that's it, and 15 minutes of that time is the teacher reading to them. And so the problem with that is that the kids are being taught to eat quickly and not concentrate on what they're eating. And I think that's a mistake, you know, and it starts from infancy and up. There's not enough education about the fight to fight obesity. I think... You know, Michelle Obama tried with the Let's Move and tried to improve school lunches, and that's kind of been lost again. Yeah, and it is frustrating that it's become so politically charged. I mean, I would think that the the message that we want to be healthier so that we don't die quite so much mm-hmm. would be relatively important. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. something that's not so controversial. Yeah. No, now it's just, I think also we live and lead crazy busy lives where exercise is not emphasized. You know, sitting in front of computers and our kids playing, I, I'm like a culprit, my kids are playing video games all the time mm-hmm. and getting out and exercise is just so important. And so I think... We're just focusing on the wrong things, and we need to get back to basics of uh, healthy, healthier lifestyles. Yeah, we covered a lot of that. We did an entire episode on sitting and the health consequences mm-hmm. of that. And it's really frustrating because everything is so sedentary, and our culture is really developed around that. And I find it especially hypocritical that we as physicians don't get time or really any incentive to take care of ourselves. Nope. None whatsoever. That's, that's where I half jokingly say, like, if I ever do start the Institute Against Disease, like you're going to be able to deduct your exercise hours from your work hours. That sounds hot. (laughs) If you want to exercise badly enough that you can do 10 hours of it, then I mean, we should figure out how to cover that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd all be happier and better workers. I think, uh, yeah, physicians are pushed and pushed and pushed and just expected to do it all. And uh, it takes a toll on us. And if someone could recognize that keeping us healthy and making us happier, we'd probably provide better care for our patients and be better role models. Yeah. And how is anybody supposed to take our advice seriously if we're not practicing what we preach? You got it. <laughs> I try. So I do, you know, when I had my two babies, I gained quite a bit of weight mm-hmm. and I was like, wow. I better start practicing what I preach. <laughs> and it does work, everyone. So the, pro- the protein shakes do work. Right. So It's also interesting. We're hoping to have our friend Jen on the show who has read a lot about mindfulness and eating. Mm-hmm. As she gave us a talk last year about mindful eating behaviors and talked about how kids only eat when they're hungry. They don't eat for any other reason. Mm-hmm. And then as time goes on and you start to associate eating with other behaviors like with your emotions or with uh, socializing or 
traveling or playing video games, something like that, then that's where you start eating more than is necessary. Yes. Yeah, you get distracted. Mindfulness is so important and it's a really good strategy. We had a, an amazing nutritionist here who really believes in mindful eating and behavior. And she worked with our patients. And I think it's it's a, another great strategy to have because, again, we get so caught up in our busy lives and tend to choose what's there. I know if I'm busy all day and don't eat, I'm in the operating room all day, and then I'm starving when I get home. And so how do I counteract what I want to do, which is go pig out. And again, like I'm starving right now. So the thing I'm thinking is (laughs) I'm going to go and hopefully go grab a protein shake so that I won't eat as, as much. Oh, that reminds me. I don't think I ever got that donut. (gasps) Are you serious? Good job, Cody. Good job. Did we pay for it? I hope not. Yeah, I think we did. (laughs) We need to go back. You should go back and demand it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about obesity donuts. <laughs> oh, well, everything in moderation. Yes, that's exactly the right. You were going to eat that donut over seven days, right? Exactly. <laughs> Clean it up. Have a little tiny piece, put it in my pouch. There you go. All right. One thing that I was hoping you could help us with, a lot of the popular culture around weight management talks about these sort of fad diets. There's the Atkins, then... Mm-hmm. Um, which they're now calling the ketogenic diet. I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit less um, extreme. And then intermittent fasting is, of course, really hot. And I think we're going to do an episode on that at one point. And then things like the paleo diet. In your experience and based on your research and readings, is there any reason to do anything more complicated than calories in, calories out from an obesity standpoint? Yeah, I think that all of the diets that you mentioned can work. The issue is that they're all extreme diets. And when things are extreme, it's very hard to continue doing that day in and day out. And so it might be successful for some. However, when you stop, the problem is a lot of the time that patients gain weight and they even gain more weight. And so the truth is calories in and calorie out is really the easiest way to explain weight gain and weight loss, um, no matter how in which way you swing it. Yes, uh, there have been studies at the National Institute of Health with the biggest loser and that the metabolic rate does go down when you diet. So we are kind of, you know, doing these extreme diets. We, we do. We, we're, we're doing this kind of juggling of the, our metabolic rate up and down and up and down. So in the end, probably the best way to approach this is in a moderation type of diet. I think that an example that's pretty moderate is Weight Watchers where it's a balanced diet. And so that is most likely the one that's going to succeed the longest for you. That said, you know, there are, again, the things that we know do work. So protein is important for our body. Protein are the building blocks of every one of our cells. And when you give protein to your body, your body uses it to regenerate and make new cells. And so we need it. If we don't give our body protein and we eat a lot of carbs, the first place, and this is exactly how I explain it to my patients, the first place that it goes is to our liver. And those carbs turn to glycogen. And glycogen is a fast form of fuel. And if we use it, then it goes away. Mm -hmm. But if we don't, it turns to fat. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes us gain the weight. Mm -hmm. 
And so again, that comes back to if you look at physiology, it's what goes in and what comes out. And so a balanced diet and exercise is the best way to approach it. You might want to use something to kind of kickstart your weight loss, and, and that's okay. Uh, in fact, we do that with our patients. We get them to do protein shakes. Hopefully, that kickstarts their diet and then start to incorporate a healthy balance. We kind of aim for 60 to 80 grams of protein for a female, 80 to 100 grams for a male. We talk about 70 grams of complex carbs drinking water, lots of water, eight cups is kind of your goal on a day, and then exercising. Maybe if you can try for 15 to 30 minutes a day, five days a week, I think that's a, a good approach. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kavita, are you familiar with this paper? No, tell me about it. All right, it. I'm going to tell you that. So <laughs> this, is the, this is one of my favorite obesity papers that I'm aware of. It came out in 2007. It's by Christakis and uh, Fowler. Basically, in a nutshell, they looked at data from what's called the Framingham Heart Study, which is a large population of patients that were followed from, I guess, 1971 to 2003. And the punchline of this study is that one of the major predictors of obesity was the number of social contacts that also had obesity for a given person. So I think this really speaks to the importance of support and the company you keep and how peer pressure can be a major factor. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to, like you were saying, uh, Dr. Steele, that food is such a uh, social phenomenon that it's really hard to be like the lone person in your group yeah. who's trying to do something. Yeah. Do you have any sense of what people could do? I mean, do you have strategies for how to engender that support and help people recruit the people around them to help them maintain that change? I think, again, it's all about these biases and the fear patients might have to even tell a family member that they are considering weight loss or surgery and try not to be afraid. I do think that support is absolutely essential. And especially if you're undergoing bariatric surgery, those around you that love you need to know what you're doing so that they can help you and try to bring them in with you. Sometimes it's really hard. There are those that are just completely against it and will do everything they can to either sabotage or try to get you not to do such an extreme thing. I think uh, if you can let them in and share with them your struggle, and what this is doing to your person and your life that maybe they could understand better. And if you're not able to do that, then you really do need to find someone. So maybe go to a support group. Most bariatric centers have support groups, and maybe you can find someone who's had surgery or is willing to be your buddy and reach out or be able to find even on some blogs, there might be someone that you can talk to that is struggling just like you and might be able to help you and be your buddy for when times are tough or just to get you motivated and give you ideas. Reach out to your uh, local YMCA and see what they're doing if they have any type of support groups or uh, programs. Maybe join a class that you're interested in where you can find someone, even some easy yoga. But 
really try to find a support person because it is important. I find in my adolescent group, you can imagine these kids, they don't have a lot of control, right? They're at home. Parents are the ones buying and purchasing the food and taking them to their, their appointments. And so in that sense, it's a family affair and we have to get the buy-in from the entire family and send the message to those family members that the obesity is a disease and it's killing that person. There needs to be an intervention the same way as any other type of chronic disease. Yeah, I see so many parallels with addiction in that the the stigma and our refusal to confront the problem ends up being a big part of mm-hmm. of the issue yeah because we just can't separate the person from the, the phenomenon that's affecting them mm-hmm. I, I think that it might be helpful if we could start moving from thinking of people as being obese and move toward thinking of as having obesity if that would make any difference no i i think um that's a better way to address it you know we say obese patients we should say patients with obesity mm-hmm. It's just like patients with cancer or patients Mm -hmm. with chronic lung disease or diabetes. And that's the way it should be addressed. Yeah. And that's, I know an eye-opening picture that I've seen floating around the internet is the, I'm sure there's a bunch of variations on it, is the MRI of the patient who's morbidly obese, kind of speaking against this idea that people are sometimes big bone, Mm -hmm. that pretty much everybody has a what you might think of as a normal sized person inside, no Correct. matter what size they they are. I mean, people are, of course, all sorts of different sizes and shapes, but nobody is destined to be um, 100% morbidly obese with no ability to avoid or modify it. No, you're right. That's a really good way to explain it. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you do? What advantages have resulted from, what does it mean to have an advantage? Uh, I guess I was hoping like to talk a little bit about the models you're using and for example, what, what do you think of the benefits of looking at functional neuroimaging in patients and what are the advantages of sort of that versus animal models and other ways of understanding obesity as an illness? Yeah, I think that obesity is such a big problem. We need to do whatever we can with whatever models we have. So I think that an animal model in basic science is an important model. I work with some wonderful basic scientists who are really discovering some incredibly important things about systemic inflammatory markers and adipokines and and, and things that might change the way that we treat diabetes and morbid obesity. So there is a role for the animal model if it's done in the right way. I think that the human model is incredibly important. And, you know, I'm so lucky. At one point in my career, one of my bosses thought that I should only do research. And my mentor said to that boss, you know what? What makes Dr. Steele different is that she is a clinician. She's in the trenches with her patients. And that gives her the ideas and the motivation for the next study. And I truly believe that my patients are so incredible. Patients who seek bariatric surgery only want to get healthier. Mm -hmm. They only want to help the next person. And they have been incredible in my research, devoting their time, volunteering their time in the hopes of helping uh, to find better treatments and in 
treating obesity and it's been pretty cool that way. So I think I'm super lucky to be able to do both clinical and the research. And I don't think I'd be happy if I did just one Mm -hmm. and that these patients just motivate you and give you the ideas. I remember very early on in my career, one of my patients said to me, Dr. Steele, you didn't operate on my head, Mm. um, but my my stomach is full, but my brain's telling me I'm hungry. Mm. And that was my first like, aha, like, Mm -hmm. wow, there is this thing, this connection. And how how do we look into this to find the answers to help, help our patients? So it's been incredible for me a responsibility that I feel I have now to help our patients even more than I'm doing now. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about this uh, 2010 paper. It sounds like this was one of the foundational papers that led into the work that you were teasing is on the the horizon. Yes. It is uh, Steele and colleagues, alterations of central dopamine receptors before and after gastric bypass surgery. Mm -hmm. That's in obesity surgery 2010. I'll try and put the link up with the show notes. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you found there? And sure. What that was it was one of my very first studies. This was before I had very much research knowledge, but it was super exciting. So I had learned about a, a super important obesity researcher named Jean-Jack Wang, who had looked at body mass index and its relationship to the dopamine receptor. So dopamine is a feel-good neurohormone in our brains. And when we have lots of it, we feel good. And uh, when we don't, we seek behaviors or things that make us feel better. So it's been associated with things like eating behavior, smoking, alcohol, and drugs. And this gave me the idea because what Jean-Jacques Wang showed was that the body mass index was inversely proportionate to how the dopamine receptor was working. And his last words in the paper were, it'd be great to look at what happens when patients lose weight. And so that was my uh, very first aha moment that I have this awesome cohort of patients (laughs) that uh, we can get before and after they lose weight. And so I set myself off to write my very first grant, and the Association of Women Surgeons gave me the funds to do my very first study. I had to find the doctor that had C11 raclopride, which is um, an FDA-approved medication. It's a radial ligand. What does that mean? It means that it binds to the dopamine receptor and um, sets off in PET imaging that uh, shows what areas of the brain are being uh, stimulated. And those are the D2 receptors that we're specifically looking at. And so I sought Dr. Dean Wong's help and also my now mentor, who has been instrumental and incredible with my research, Dr. Tim Moran. And we uh, scanned five patients who were undergoing gastric bypass before their surgery and then six weeks after their surgery using PET imaging and this C11 raclopride. And it was pretty incredible. It was a very small study, but it was the first one done looking at neuroimaging in bariatric patients before and after. So that's kind of what took off. And what it did was show that four of those five patients responded as their body mass index decreased, their dopamine receptors actually improved, which was pretty cool. In our one patient, however, there was no improvement. And what was fascinating about that was that patient really struggled with her weight loss. Mm -hmm. 
And so what has been our kind of hypothesis and premise with all of that is that there might, that obesity is multifactorial. There are different reasons why patients suffer from obesity. One might be that there's a primary decrease in the amount of dopamine receptors or the dopamine receptors just don't work well. And that might be a genetic predisposition. And that might be our patient that just didn't lose weight. And so what does she have to do? She has to keep eating to feel good. The other hypothesis is that it's a down regulation. So overeating over time blunts the dopamine receptors, very similar to how diabetes, that we blunt those beta cells and insulin do not respond the same way. And so in our brains, overeating blunts those receptors and over time, those receptors don't respond as well. When we lose weight and decrease the amount that we eat, those receptors improve. And so these have been kind of our working hypotheses as we move forward in our research. And that was kind of the start of my research career. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool, like, clean study. And it's always exciting to see effects that show up in such a low number of patients. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like there's a big difference between clinical significance and Mm -hmm. statistical significance sometimes. But if something is evident after only looking at five people, you know it's something that is likely to come across your. Um, that's what we're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're hoping. Yeah. So, uh, and that's what's kind of been the motivator for our our new studies as as we're moving on. My last question for the the main interview is: mm-hmm. What factors do you think have led to the success of your academic career so far? It's uh, it's uncommon to see surgeon scientists thrive since uh, both aspects of your career are really uh, demanding. Yes, I, I think, you know, for all of those out there, I'm not going to paint that it's been a rosy, easy picture because <laughs> it's not. I think uh, what has got me through is uh, persistence and determination, and that's because of the passion for it. And I think if you hold on to those things, you can have success. You shouldn't let someone tell you you can't do it. And that's what I try to tell my students, uh, that if you have a passion and a drive to do something, then you go for it. I think that's what's kept me going. Um, You know, resilience is really important. I had a young lady, this marvelous young lady uh, in surgery, say to me one day, though, you know, Dr. Steele, the problem with resilience, I've been told to be resilient. But resilience means there's never going to be change. And so that was very profound for me. So I think, yes, we need to be resilient. We also need to speak up. We need to tell how it is and fight for our patients, advocate for them, and do the right thing. So in the end, maybe that's been what's helped me succeed. I don't know. Is that okay? Yeah, that's <laughs> perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Steele, for being here with us, uh, for sharing your experts' advice and opinions. And I have to say, happiness time. also, now that you know, because yeah. you guys are just, it's been wonderful to uh, hang out with you tonight. And another happiness is sharing my wisdom and things I've learned and teaching all of the students that I've worked with and watch them flourish and do incredible things in the world and in life is awesome. And it's just a pleasure to see you guys doing something like this and trying to make a difference in the world is pretty incredible. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. 
And thank you for for coming. I mean, you know, Gavita and I are trying to do our own reading and develop some of our own topics, but I think there's so much to learn from people who are deep into a certain part of the field. And the, I mean, the perspective you have is not something that uh, is easy to come by. <laughs> so I think we were able to address aspects of obesity that were certainly far beyond my level of expertise and experience. Great. And I think that I learned a lot and I hope our, our listeners will feel the same way. Absolutely. I did too. Great. Well, if anybody needs to contact me, I'm, I'm on the website for Hopkins and I'm happy to, to help out if I can. All right.